Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're talking with Larissa Pham about her debut essay collection, Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy. But before we get to that, though somewhat related to that conversation, I am so excited to hang out with Medea this weekend and also Kate. We've planned like a little <laughs> reunion of sorts um, because we have not seen each other in real life in over a year. So I am so excited to actually see you physically in person. Medea, I cannot believe that it's been so long. I know. I can't either. I'm also excited. I'm also excited to be back in Los Angeles where Yay, that's right. the weather... The weather is nice as always, and the allergies are kicking my ass. But um, <laughs> but I'm happy to be here, and and I'm happy to be talking to Larissa today about this about this book. Yeah, it was so great. It's one of those um, kind of you know we we get into this in the interview, but it kind of balances really beautifully between the sort of stuff that we love, which is close reading and engagement with art but then also memoir and trying to make sense of how art helps us make sense of ourselves in many ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think Larissa weaves those two things really seamlessly together um, in this collection. So let's get to our conversation. Let's do it. Today we have Larissa Pham on the line with us. A Brooklyn-based artist and writer, Larissa's essays and criticism have appeared in the Paris Review Daily, The Nation, Guernica, and more. I first encountered Larissa's work in an excellent piece that she wrote for the recent collection Kink, a story that deals with themes of violence and desire that are equally reflected in the debut collection she's here to talk to us about today. And the name of that is Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy. Shifting between memoir and an acute attunement to various art objects and experiences in the present, Pop Song explores what it means to want a life and to strive for it, to navigate relationships, to build and then rebuild a self, and to appreciate and even desperately rely upon encounters with art that gives such life its meaning. Thanks for joining us, Larissa. Hi, thanks for having me. So Larissa, I wanted to start off with just talking a little bit about how you turned to essay writing and to being a writer because you began as a painter, at least in college. And I wanted to hear a little bit about your transition to a writer and the differences perhaps in the practice. I had always been a writer and a, I guess a visual artist at the same time. And I actually remember in high school and later in college noticing how these they would kind of come in waves for me. Like sometimes I would be painting more and sometimes I would be writing more. And I think I was drawn to studying painting for whatever reason. I think it just felt like I loved being in a studio. I loved like sharing work. I loved being in critique. I was a bit more private about my writing when I was younger. But when it, I think towards the end of college, it became pretty clear that I was not necessarily cut out to be a painter, which is fine. I think you can study something and love it and maybe not like try to go pro. (laughs) But I had been writing online for a long time and I had started publishing and it seemed really natural to keep going down that route. So that's about how it happened. Can you explain like how you see, because one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was reading through a number of the different 
pieces included in pop song, many of which actually ruminate directly on your encounter with an art object, right? Like being in a museum or looking at a particular painting or being envious of a friend who can have an experience with a painting that you can't quite have. I was thinking about how your writing is distinct in its attention to both colors is the most obvious, but also to textures. Like there's a real interest in the tactile mm-hmm. in your writing. And I would love to hear you talk about how your art practice, your kind of visual art practice and your writing fuse with one another at the level of technique rather than say content or form or things like that. Yeah, that's a great question. I really appreciate hearing that from you. I think I write about art in a very embodied or I guess like tactile way because I love art so much. And Mm. I like painting in particular is what I studied and what I do when I do make art. But I've also taken photography classes, particularly film photography. And I feel that knowing how things made is pretty, pretty important when it comes to like having a relationship with an art piece. And like looking at a painting and saying like someone's hand did that, like someone made those brush marks and thinking about like what goes into the paint, like what's it made of, like all of this feels like very important as well as what the painting is representing. And I I like the comparison that you make between my work and then this attention to sort of the texture or the sort of materiality of art making, because I think a lot about like form and content in writing and how my work itself is like pretty, it kind of has that textured quality to it too. Like, you know, I can talk about like what the topic of an essay is, but really like what's interesting to me is like how it's being written about in the way that like you can look at a painting and say, well, it's a painting of some flowers, but talking about the quality of the brushstrokes is also going to tell you something different. So, I mean, one of the things that this book is about is the relationship between yourself and art, but it's also about the relationship between you and other people. And one of the ways in which I think you explore that is by also triangulating your relationships with other people, with your relationship to art and kind of making those things relative to each other and relevant to each other. Sometimes that's in the form of sort of photographing boyfriends or thinking about particular works in terms of your relationship to somebody else. And I was wondering what you felt like art provided in terms of thinking about your relationship to other people and perhaps your physical relationship to other people or your emotional or sexual relationships to other people. What kind of purchase do you feel like it gives you on how you you understand those relationships and how you might talk about them? Because I think it's a very unique way of or that you have a unique way of combining those things, but also that it serves as a kind of perspective on not just yourself, but your ways of relating to others. So I was just wondering if you think about that Mm -hmm. and if you Mm -hmm. think about how those things relate or if it's like a natural kind of associative relationship making. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's such an interesting question. I think my instinct is to sort of think about the narratives that we reference when we're talking about relationships or life, you know, like, oh, this reminds me of like this movie I saw, or this reminds me of like the love story and like a novel that I read. And I think that it's a little simplistic to say that, but I do think that we learn so much from the media that surrounds us. And I think looking to art or like what someone might call like fine art is not so different than from like watching a movie and being like, oh, well, that really resonated with me. And I think in the case of like for example, the photographers that I reference, 
there was a kind of mood or a kind of intimacy depicted that really resonated with me or seemed to like encompass either what I felt or what I was like trying really hard to feel. And so when it came to writing about those experiences, it felt very important to include the work of those photographers in dialogue. So that's actually a perfect segue to one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about the kind of BDSM themes in the book or the kind of ways that you engage with BDSM. And, you know, your way into that, this is mostly drawn for listeners from the story Body of Work, which is early on in the collection. And you kind of open that up with a reading of Nan Golden's photograph, Heart-Shaped Bruise. But it seems like actually what kind of fails is photography's ability to capture an experience and a sensorium, I guess, is a better way of capturing it, like the kind of totality of BDSM is both like a scene and a bodily inhabitation practice, those sorts of things, that art kind of fails to capture something that you're also trying to learn through that essay. So on the one hand, I would just love to hear you kind of talk about how difficult it is to actually write through BDSM as like an experience, you know, kind of that fascination with the gossamer boundary between pleasure and pain that BDSM plays with and your own kind of potentially public shame versus like private pleasure. So can you just talk a little bit about kind of how maybe you see BDSM as an art practice itself or a kind of experience that exceeds the abilities of art to represent it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting having this question, especially after having contributed a story to Kink, because I find that my story in Kink is really a depiction of BDSM that feels very different Mm. from the one in my book. I think that there are a couple ways to get at this question. I think that having BDSM in pop song, and it is in that story chapter really, body of work, and I think it was helpful to me to include it in this essay that is really about like pain, Mm -hmm. like pain, 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 like as a way of like processing that pain and articulating it and exploring one way that I could have agency over that pain and how historically like more than just me, like more, more people than I have like gone this route to navigate some kind of pain or past trauma. And I felt it was important to also tie in sort of this understanding of BDSM with like the fact that I worked at an agency that supported survivors of sexual violence and sexual assault survivors and that I had to undergo training to sort of help these people. And in turn, that was like propelled by this own harm that I had felt in my life before. So to me, those things feel very intimately connected. And I think that's why that I see BDSM's role in that chapter as being sort of related to the pain aspect of it, maybe more so than the aesthetic of it. But I do think that when it makes its way into art and art practices like BDSM can be a very aesthetic tool that people are drawing on for its connotations or its history. But then there's also like some very beautiful examples of it that particularly in photography, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Kathy Opie and I'm thinking of my friend Al Perez, who has shown some work that has sort of navigated this culture where it is more about like identity or like maybe a kind of like almost like unreadability for a mainstream gaze. You write about trauma and haunted, I think very 
perceptively, but I was wondering what you learned about trauma while you were working at that center. Can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, well, I was quite traumatized while I was working there because of the work, which is something I think people don't really talk about. But I think it's true that when you're doing any kind of movement work or any kind of like supportive work or anything where you're really in contact with a lot of people's stories and stories of violence, it's it affects you. And I think that's why there's a lot of burnout in social workers and people who work with like survivors. So I learned that. That was something that I did not know before. But I think what working at that agency really taught me was this understanding of how violence affects people and the ways that violence affects people at the intersections of their identities. So it's hard to like think of a good example of it, but it's like when someone is harming you, they're harming you at every point that you are marginalized. Like that's kind of how violence will manifest. And that means that like people who experience the most violence are the people who experience the most marginalization, which is a tricky thing to explain to someone. But that's why, you know, like not all hate crimes are hate crimes equally, if that makes any sense. Totally. It's very interesting to hear you say that because I I agree. I think I've not heard it stated that plainly or in those plain terms. How far in your experience, do you feel like you came into your experience in that job or in your sort of own figuring out of your own past and your own trauma? Did you come to that or did you come to it far into sort of working at this place where you kind of felt you realized that, oh, there's violence. Violence works at intersections of marginality. It doesn't work on its own in separate spheres. Like it, it affects people at all of the ways in which they are marginalized. Yeah, that wasn't something that I could learn from personal experience, I don't think. Mm. Like a woman of color, like my experience is in some ways more specific. And like, I think that I'm not really saying anything new when I point to ways that like women of color have been alienated, for example, by like white feminism. Like I feel like that's a very common discussion topic. So I, I understood it in that aspect. But I think just sort of sitting with the bare facts of it at work and really just talking to people whose lives were so different from mine. And yeah, like, I don't know, it was, it was helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Larissa Pham, author of Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have Nick Pinkerton on the line here. Nick is a film critic, and his most recent book is Goodbye Dragon Inn, which is a study of the film by the same name, and he's here to give us a book recommendation. Nick, what book will you recommend? Well, I'm going to recommend a author who I'd been like circling around for a long time with this sort of serene expectation that I would enjoy him, Charles Portis. And the book is The Dog of the South, which after ages of hesitating to uh, get cracking on Charles Portis, my dear friend Chris Jacobson uh, got me a copy from his place of work. And I absolutely bulldozed through this thing and screaming laughing the entire time 
It has a particular comic tone that uh, I am a extremely soft touch for. This kind of high-handed narrator who has a extremely extremely elevated view of himself and his intellect a view of himself at least that isn't totally borne out by the events of the book um this is one ray midge who is a let's say slightly unfocused young man self-styled intellectual student of american history generally and military strategy specifically whose uh, wife splits with a former co-worker of his and heads down mexico way and he takes off in a hot pursuit of both of them which sounds like a thriller premise but it's really anything but it's really tied up in a lot of this strange anecdotal vignettes and particularly the kind of bitchy persnickety perspective of the narrator ray midge you know just little things about uh, him carrying on about affixing the napkin of uh, his beer with bits of moisture to the bar surface so that uh, when he lifts the glass the napkin won't come up with it making him uh, look buffoonish all this stuff just gives me infinite delight quarreling <laughs> the entire way through that's great. I know um, the only part of this book I know is True Grit. And I it's, he's one of those authors who I actually don't even have a sense like when he was alive. Um, I know he died not that long ago. Yeah, quite recently. So um, it, when is this book from? Like the 70s or 80s? When When is it written? That is such a fantastic question. 79. And I've subsequently read Norwood and Masters of Atlantis. And then I had to pump the brakes a little bit because there's only five novels overall. By the intel, I've received four of them excellent. Gringo's, uh, my friend at least, has some compunction about. But I was going so full steam on the Portis, I had to slow my roll a little bit because I don't want to finish them all. They're so damn good. But uh, I got... I got uh, True Grit will be coming up soon in uh, the batter's box. But you never forget your first, my first Portis, The Dog of the South, which quickly became one of my favorite books of all time. I love it so much. That's a great recommendation. Will you say the title and the author just one more time? Charles Portis is the author. The Dog of the South is the title. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you very much for having me. That was Nick Pinkerton. His new book is Goodbye Dragon Inn. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Larissa Pham, author of Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy. On a related note, there's a moment, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of years, you talk about your early forays into Tumblr, right? Which like mm -hmm. I love for both their kind of like the periodization that that entails, you know, and that we're kind of like, I think at least like over peak Tumblr in a way that, you know, like five to 10 years ago, like Tumblr was very exciting. And one of the things that you talk about both is 
the kind of Tumblr generation is a generation that, I'm trying to remember exactly how you say this, but you're basically like they demand attention. Like there's a kind of like desire for attention, but there's also a way in which that attention can often, especially for particular types of subjects who experience marginalization or oppression, that that attention can be tied so intimately to their identification as, um, you know, trauma survivors or suffering victims, that there's at one point you say something like, my my trauma or my suffering made me interesting and was like a route to become. And that's something that I feel in the text, at least you pushing back against. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, because also what we're talking about there, right, even though nobody's getting paid for Tumblr, or at least as far as I know, it's like that is also participating in the in the very disturbing capitalist logics of a market economy, right? So can you just talk a little bit about that? I just found that fascinating and it's something that I've been thinking about in terms of the monetization of identity on various like digital platforms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you said it. Like, I think old Tumblr or like, Tumblr in its heyday was a place where, I don't know, those those categories of how to be didn't feel quite so firmly delineated. I think identity-based language felt like a place to create a home and not a box to necessarily put yourself into. And there was this sense of like, I've never been able to express myself before, or here's the term that someone is giving to me in order to help me understand who I am. And that felt really exciting and and really liberating for people. I think the trouble is that that kind of language got really co-opted. My friend Inav writes a newsletter called Mental Health. And they pointed out like a study from way back. One of the founders of BuzzFeed like pointed out that like capitalizing on people's identities and sense of identity was like a way to make like a profitable website. And that's how BuzzFeed was born essentially. (laughs) So, you know, like the underpinnings have been there all along for someone to, to take advantage of, of this kind of language. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Like I, I came up with a lot of other writers on Tumblr and a lot of writers who were kind of in the online space, like the personal essay space before me all kind of had to navigate this like gauntlet of identity. So I I certainly wasn't the only one. So in one of the um, pieces in in the book, you write about a game that you would play with a friend or a, a partner where you would go to a museum and you would declare when something had it. Do you also bring up a, a few other works of art um, and things where you either listened to it or you watched it and it had it, what you call it. And you make this and you make a connection between what you call it and Benjamin's aura and, and when he talks about the the aura of the work. But, you know, at, and it made me think of this as we were talking about Tumblr is that some of the works that you talk about are reproducible, infinitely so, because they're online. <laughs> and I was thinking more about that and and if you have uh, with, you know, NFTs and with and with writing also, those things are reproducible. They're infinitely reproducible. Mm-hmm. They will maintain their itness within the reproduction. So I was wondering if you've thought more about this, the what that it is and its aura ness and the rise of internet culture and your own rise within that culture. 
Yeah, I do think there's a distinction between like it and like Benjamin's aura. And I think there's a line in there where I'm sort of like, what is it? Like, I wish that it, no, ekphrasis or something like that, where it's like, I want, I don't want to fully explain it. Like, I don't, like, I don't want it to be worn out in a sense. Um, And yeah, I think the aura of a piece fades. Like, I think it is like as, in Benjamin's own words, like it's sort of tied to its place and it's like context. And that's why like when you reproduce it, like something about the object inherently changes. But I think like this it that I'm sort of trying to articulate is more about gesture and less about presence. Um, and it's more about like a quality within the work that I see as like maybe particularly vulnerable or a moment in the artist's hand where you can really like see the way a brush stroke is changing or you just kind of know how someone drew something like it's 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 more like it's not really a texture I guess it is really like a a thing of content within the piece but yeah I mean that's why I love writing about the YouTube videos because they are so reproducible and they are so accessible and like even if the video quality degrades like that it ideally will still be there so I appreciate like accessibility in art. I like online archives and I like things being up for people to see. I do think when it comes to like an NFT or something like sort of being branded as special when it's really like the same sort of like image online, like I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know if that's like special enough for me to like really see it as its own thing. But if it makes someone else happy, then I guess they can have their own experience with that work. But I, yeah. on the whole, yeah, I think I think it's a good thing that that things are reproducible for sure. And then just to explain to our listeners, in case they don't know what an NFT is, that refers to a non-fungible token, which is effectively how you sell a piece of digital art that, as Larissa has been explaining, you can reproduce multiple times. And in that sense, like the NFT... I mean, Lewis, I'd be interested in, because this is everywhere now in in the news, you know, where it's like Chris Crocker, for example, this was one that was of particular interest to me, perhaps only, but like Chris Crocker's kind of, I think that was 2010, I'm trying to remember what it was from, but where he was screaming as like a young gay boy, leave Britney alone into, you know, into the void of YouTube then kind of sold that, I believe, as like an NFT. So the NFT is also a way, and again, correct me if I'm thinking about this wrong, Larissa, to just monetize fundamentally, infinitely accessible art um, in a way that creates ownership around it. I think that's the gist of it. Yeah, and this sort of idea that someone has like something similar to like a certificate of authenticity um, right. And that seems to me to fundamentally <laughs> undermine the abstract concept of itness that you guys are talking about, right? Because that's merely just like making it rare. It's not making it it, right? It's itness would still circulate in the various ways that it's taken up in online media. Yeah. I mean, I think if it if something has it and then it doesn't really matter who owns it. I think what the NFTs are trying to do is they're trying to manufacture a sense of aura, like a sense of specialness. Like this is the one, like, I don't even know, like string of numbers or whatever that like makes something more <laughs> special than something else. But like, you know, I can right click and like save that JPEG the same way anyone else can. Um, and, and, and I mean, this is like maybe a spicy take, but I feel like most of the NFT style 
graphics that I'm seeing have no it whatsoever. Like there's, there's nothing yeah, compelling in them. There's that. nothing yeah. exciting, but maybe they have this fake aura that, you know, people are deeming special. We'll see. It's all in the eye of the beholder, I guess, at some point. (laughs) But actually, as we kind of like wrap up, one thing that I feel like we have not talked about on the show for a very long time because it's been just like brewing in the background is our like overhanging cloud of doom. But I want to actually talk about the pandemic because like, so one is... Larissa, kind of how I assume that much of this book, or at least the final touches of it, were produced during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to just get a sense of how the pandemic impacted your writing practice. But then also to get a sense of what you are looking forward to now, and I am knocking on wood as we speak because I do not want to jinx it, that it seems like the world is starting to open up again. I mean, one of the things that I got in reading a number of these pieces is how desperately I have missed being in a museum and like Mm -hmm. seeing art in real life or being around people in real life. Um, So yeah, so just like give us a sense of how's the pandemic impacted your writing and kind of what are you looking forward to now that it seems that the world's opening up? Yeah, well, I sold the book in November of 2019 and I sat on it nervously for about a month after that. And then in January, I was like, I have to really like start writing this thing outside of like what I had already put together from like existing work or my sample chapters. And so in January, I like locked down and I was like, all right, I'm just going to stay home. I have my little computer. I have my monitor. Um, I'll just write this thing. And um, because of the distributor and the way that printing was going to happen, my deadline was May. Did not give me a lot of time to write the book. Fortunately or unfortunately, it turned out that I had all the time in the world because I locked down in January. Everyone else locked down in March where we've kind of been ever since. And so Pop Song turned into this very compressed writing experience, ultimately, I think, to the benefit of the text. But yeah, it was written very, very quickly and intensely and edited very soon after the first draft. So I always benefit from like a really intense timeline. Um, so <laughs> I, I, guess it was, I guess it was good for the book. Um, But yeah, there's so much travel in it and there is so much place in it that I am really looking forward to seeing art in person again. I've I've done some sort of museum going. I've been to the Met. I saw um, the new show Grief and Grievance at the new museum, which is really, really good um, and absolutely requires being (laughs) present for. And I, I will really enjoy like being in a different place whenever it's safe to travel. I am excited for that. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I think on that note of hope, as we like look to open up and heading out in the world again and experiencing art and each other, we'll close the show there. Thank you so much, Larissa, for joining us. We've been speaking with Larissa Pham, author of Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. 
Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.